All right. Hey, let's pray together. Father, we love you and we are grateful to be gathered as a church to worship you and to sing and pray and, and just, just lift our eyes to you. And we ask, God, that you just come and that you would teach us that by your spirit you would shape our hearts and open our eyes and help us understand what we're about to read and consider. God, would you use this time uh, however you choose. Move freely here in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Hey, well, welcome once again. We're so glad you're at FBC. My name is Matt, and I'm a pastor here, and we're just glad that you're with us. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4, starting in verse 13. We just heard a bit of it read aloud. Again, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are some on the seats in front of you, or we're going to have the words on the screen as we go. We've been walking through the book of Acts um, little by little here for a few months now, just preaching through this fantastic book in the New Testament. So Acts chapter 4, 13 is where we'll be today. You know, in one of Jesus' most famous teachings, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, perhaps you're familiar with it, it's found in Matthew chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but it's there that he tells his followers that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He says it just like that. You are the salt of the earth. And then you are the light of the world. Two images, uh, illustrations that communicate the idea that followers of Jesus are to have a clear and noticeable and unmistakable impact in the world. Right? Whether it's preserving a piece of meat or fish or hitting your taste buds, there is an unmistakable impact that salt has when it comes into contact with something. And the same with light, right? When you turn a flashlight on in a dark room, it, it reveals what is hidden, it illuminates a path, it draws attention from all around, right? Jesus says a city on a hill has an impact. It cannot be mistaken against the dark night sky of the surrounding region. With those two images and, and plenty others, right, Jesus prepares his followers for the fact that they would and should have an impact on the world around them, that the world would, would experience his followers and have a, a necessary reaction and we see this on display as we read through the book of Acts, that these early Christians were not just quietly coasting seamlessly through the world unnoticed. We see that these followers of Jesus, because of their commitment to Jesus, are actually uh, sticking out like a sore thumb. And they're getting into trouble and they're, they're shaking things up. And so today, as we follow Jesus in the world, there's going to be, we just got to prepare for it, a, a variety of reactions that people have to us. Hopefully, much of it is positive. Hopefully, people look at the church and they are, they are moved or encouraged or inspired as they see a community so marked by love that we love one another and love our neighbors, that they uh, see our good deeds and they praise God and want to be a part of it. Hopefully, again, people, people see how we live in the world and they're challenged. They're challenged by the way that we love people and shine the truth of the gospel into the world. 
But as we see this morning, sometimes the reaction that people have to followers of Jesus, sometimes the way the world reacts to Christians will be confusion. Sometimes the world will be confused by Christians or perplexed or scratching their heads a little bit, not being quite sure what to make of these followers of Jesus or what to do with them. You'll, you'll see it in the text as we go. Trust me, we'll jump in, starting in verse... Well, let's, let's zoom out a little bit, actually. Let's start in verse 3. Remember where we've been. Again, we started in verse 13 as we heard the reading, but zoom, zoom out a bit. A bit earlier, verse 3 of chapter 4 says this. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So Peter and John went to prison for the night. We know the next morning they were on trial before the Sanhedrin. And this is happening because of some events that, that started all the way back at the beginning of chapter 3. Right, we've been in kind of this same sequence of events for weeks and weeks now. We've been here for a good chunk of time. Back at the start of chapter 3, remember Peter and John, uh, the apostles, followers of Jesus, they're going up to the temple uh, to pray. And there's a, a beggar there, a man who had been lame since birth, and he asks them for help. And they heal the man in the name of Jesus. And he's pretty happy about it. And so he goes jumping around, running through the temple, celebrating what God has done in his life. Uh, I feel like after spending all this time with this man in the text, we should know his name, right? Should we, should we give him a name? I don't know. We don't know his name, though. The passage doesn't tell us. Um, but he's running around and celebrating, and, and people are amazed, right? The crowd sees this. They knew the guy. He was, he was a beggar for, for decades, Right? Since birth, he had been lame. And so they knew who he was, and now they see him walking. It's a miracle, no doubt about it. And so the crowds gather around the apostles, and they take this as an opportunity to, to preach the gospel and tell everybody there about Jesus. People come to faith, they're saved, but all the bigwigs around aren't happy about this, right? It's causing quite a ruckus and, and stir in the temple, and they put Peter and John in jail because of it. And then the next morning, of course, they, they bring them before the council, before the highest court in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, all the, the elders and leaders and lawyers and scholars and priests, basically chief priests of the land, come together and are, are questioning Peter and John, grilling them. And we saw Peter preach the gospel last week, right? He says, hey, look, guys, you want to know how this guy was healed? You want to know how all this happened? Then know this. Remember that guy, Jesus, you crucified? Well, God raised him from the dead, and it's in his name that this lame beggar has been healed and stands before you well. And by the way, Jesus is the cornerstone the stone that was rejected, but now is the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. That gets us up to verse 12. Right, so there's opposition, but there's great impact. There's boldness. These men are filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel, sharing about Jesus. But we're yet to see how the council is going to respond. 
Right, and so this was like a good, um, you know, courtroom drama movie that we were watching. It's like in verses, you know, 1 to 12, we just saw this like passionate uh, speech given on the courtroom floor by, you know, one of the defense attorneys, and we're all moved by it. But then uh, the, the jury or the judge, whoever's listening, has to take a second, withdraw, figure out what they're going to do with that impassioned speech and how they're going to respond. They have to retire to their chamber to decide what to do with these men on trial. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. If you were with us a few weeks ago when Pastor Scott Henning was here preaching from Acts chapter 4, he, he skipped ahead a little bit to this verse, and he pointed out that Peter and John were, were unschooled, ordinary men. And that amazed the council. It actually made them pretty angry as well. But, but they looked at these men, and they were amazed by the courage and the boldness with which they spoke when on trial. These were men who were, again, unschooled and ordinary, meaning they hadn't been trained in, in Greek rhetoric or philosophy. Uh, they hadn't sat under an officially recognized Jewish rabbi, and so the elites of the land would look down on them. These are just simple simpletons, simple folk, unschooled, ordinary, nothing special about them. And yet, they say, but here they are with boldness, articulating the gospel under great pressure and persecution. Look at how they respond. And they realize that these men had been with Jesus. We'll talk about that more in just, just a second. But for the moment, notice how the text describes the council's reaction in verse 13. It says what? They were astonished. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were taken aback. They were saying to themselves, wait a minute, the math on these fellas isn't quite adding up. We're having a hard time placing them categorically somewhere. They're ordinary and they're unschooled, and yet they're bold. And they're courageous, and they speak with power and, and conviction. And so what do we make of these guys? We don't know. And that same theme, you know, continues. They're astonished. They're, they're confused. You can say, look at verse 14. It says, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. And so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. Verse 16, I love this. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. I mean, everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. In other words, we don't want them to say another word about this Jesus guy. We've heard enough. Verse 15, they have Peter and John removed from the Sanhedrin so the council could confer together. And I love verse 16, the question they're asking. What are we going to do with these men? What are we going to do with these guys? They're ordinary but bold and speak with power. And, and we, we can't deny that they've performed a sign. Uh, they, they've done this amazing miracle. And everyone in Jerusalem knows it. 
But verse 17, but this Jesus thing is a problem that we need to stop it from spreading. Do you see the dilemma that's kind of they're sorting through in their minds? These guys are a blessing in a way. They've, they've healed this man and changed his life radically, but they're also a problem because they're, they're speaking about Jesus, and we don't like that, and that's a threat to us. This Jesus thing can't go any further. And so they decide, hey, let's threaten them and command them to stop talking about Jesus. So two, two things we can, we can notice here and, and make from all of this. First, sometimes evidence isn't enough. Right? Sometimes evidence simply isn't enough. With their own eyes, they, they see this man who is lame from birth, begging at the temple, now standing before them healed. And they say in their own words, we cannot deny it. Everyone knows it. Everyone has seen it. But they still refuse to believe. And instead, they decide to actively oppose the apostles and forbid the preaching of the gospel. I mean, this is really one of those themes that we see on display in the book of Acts, how the leaders get it wrong, how their, their hearts are hard, how they care more about their own position and authority and power than they do the truth. They're threatened by the gospel and they not only reject Jesus, but then they want to stop other people from encountering Jesus as well. They say, we don't want you to tell anybody else about this Jesus. So they're, they're not responding personally, and then they're getting in the way of other people responding as well. Think about how hard does your heart have to be to see this man, lame from birth, Paralyzed, unable to walk, his legs hadn't developed properly. Now he's walking and running and leaping and celebrating. How hard does your heart have to be to look at that and say, no more of that? Sometimes evidence isn't enough. I mean, think about how many people do we read about in the Gospels that saw the miracles of Jesus and they heard the teaching of Jesus with their own eyes and still walked away and didn't believe. See, the problem isn't a lack of evidence. No, for them, the problem is a hard heart. Amen. And there are plenty out there who, who aren't really interested in where the evidence will lead them because they've already made up their mind about how they want to live. Now, to be clear, there are also plenty of people, hear me out, who simply haven't heard the message or don't know the gospel message or the claims of Jesus. And so there are plenty of people where we say, hey, let us come alongside in love and great patience and, and make space for those who are genuinely seeking that God is clearly at work in their hearts and they're exploring and they want to understand and know more and examine the evidence and, and read the Bible for themselves and see if this whole Jesus thing is real. Absolutely, we are to be a people that makes space for that. But the text shows us that there, there, there comes a point, right, where, where you know enough to make a decision. Right, there comes a point where you've seen enough. You have all the information that you need. And sometimes in that place, people still will want to you know, keep things at an arm's length. 
and say, well, I need a little bit more evidence. I need a little bit more. If God would just come down and reveal himself to me in this way, you know, then I would believe. And yet Jesus says, actually, you have all the information you need at this point to make a response. So again, sometimes evidence isn't enough. And we then have to pray, right, that the Holy Spirit of God would change hearts and open eyes and help people see and understand and soften hearts so that they might respond to Jesus. So evidence isn't enough. The second thing we notice from all this, though, is that followers of Jesus will be confusing to the world. Kind of like we talked about a few minutes ago, right? Followers of Jesus will be confusing to the world, meaning people will and should look at us as we follow Jesus and go, huh, I'm not really sure what to do with you. Right? You, you don't fit my like neatly preconceived categories, uh, and I'm not quite sure where to place you. Kind of like a spork. You know, like, <laughs> it's not a spoon. It's not a fork. It's, it's like, you know, it doesn't fit neatly into its own thing. It's, it's a spork. So you guys don't fit neatly. I don't know what to do with you guys. You, the math doesn't quite add up. Like, look, look again with me at the text. Verse 16, what are we going to do with these men? What are we going to do? Everyone knows they performed this sign. We can't deny it, but we've got to stop it. These guys are ordinary, but they're bold. They're a blessing. They healed this man, but they're a problem that has to be stopped. Do we condemn them? Do we let them go? What are we going to do with these guys? Followers of Jesus will be confusing to the world. It's true for the apostles then. It should be true for us today that as we follow Jesus, we should, we're going to bring together these values and ways of life that, that, that the world should say those shouldn't go together. For example, uh, we're going to be a mix. We should be a mix of blessing and challenge. And that's what we see these apostles doing, where we, we love and serve others and bless them while also calling them, inviting them to this new way of life centered on Jesus that's going to threaten a little bit their way of life, going to challenge them to view things or interact with the world in a different way. So with this mix of blessing and, and challenge, we should be, be welcoming and loving and comforting to the world around us, and yet also there's something unsettling about the gospel message because it shakes us up and is going to require people to repent and, and live a new life in Christ. Also, John 1 tells us that Jesus himself came full of grace and truth. So followers of Jesus should embody both grace and truth as well. Not grace without truth. Grace and love and do whatever you want. Who cares? But also not truth without grace, where we're just cold and uncharitable and beat people over the head with our Bibles. And the world expects probably one or the other. We can be gracious and loving and just, just affirm and, and embrace and celebrate everything that you choose and no matter what. Or we're just like cold and legalistic and rigid and smacking people with our Bibles and all the same. And they say those, those shouldn't go together. And yet in Jesus, we, we see grace and truth. And so for followers of Jesus, we should have this union of grace and truth where we love people profoundly where we practice hospitality and generosity and, and love our neighbors, and that they truly would feel loved and seen and cared for and known by us. 
And then they would also look at us at the same time and say, but wow, you, you have these, these convictions, these beliefs about God or about the world that, that don't always align with, with our neighbors or with the world. And so what do we do with that? Followers of Jesus also are to be this mix of, of confidence and humility. Right? Two things that we say, maybe those don't normally go together, and yet in the apostles we see they had this boldness and this courage, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and, and spoke with power and conviction, and yet they were, they were humble and they were pointing away from themselves and not making a big show for their own sake that they would be noticed, but they're pointing always to, to Jesus. Hey, that's not about us. Look to Jesus. And the world says, no, it probably should be one or the other. Or again, for the Christian, the values of the kingdom, I don't think fit neatly into our, our current kind of cultural schemes or our current political landscape. A few years ago, Pastor Tim Keller, one of my heroes, um, he wrote an article in the New York Times which had the title, How Do Christians Fit Into the Two-Party Political System? <laughs> and his answer was, they don't says they don't. And I think he's right. He says, no, look at the values or the talking points of, of the right and of, of the left. And for, for Jesus followers, for citizens of the kingdom of God, we're, I think we're going to have a hard time fitting neat, nice, and comfortable into all one or all the other. And so people should look at us like they looked, like the council looked at Peter and John and said, what do we do with these guys? Not quite sure what to make of them. They're confident, but they're humble, full of grace and truth. They're bold, but they're ordinary. They're a blessing, but kind of a threat. We should have that sort of confusing reaction upon people. And the question would be then, what, what holds this all together? All these, you know, divergent, maybe concepts or thoughts or values, how, what holds them all together? And the answer is Jesus. Right. Sunday school answer. That was like a, you know, fastball over the plate. Jesus. Jesus is the answer. That's the difference the council uh, noticed in these men, right? They looked at all of this and they said, they determined they had been with Jesus. That's the only explanation they could have that made sense for who they were. And so hear me clearly. My, my encouragement this morning is not a call to be different just for the sake of being different. You know, the call is not, hey, just like break the mold of all the categories out there and be edgy and nonconformist and, you know, fight the power and like that's the answer in every situation. No, the call is to follow Jesus, to walk with him, to, to take him at his word, to walk in his ways. And if you do, you won't have to go looking for a fight. It, it will find you, <laughs> right? As, as you walk with Jesus and embrace his word, just those, those distinctions or places of tension with the world around us, will, they will surface. And so again, don't go pick a fight and just go be edgy and nonconformist for the sake of being different. No, just follow Jesus and sit humbly with him and allow his word and his ways to, to read you. Don't just read the word, but let the word read you. And allow the spirit of God to look at your life and convict you and change you 
and lead you to think differently and live differently? So that's the key. Have we been with Jesus? Do we sit with Jesus on a regular basis? Hearing his voice. Quieting the noise around us. Because there's a lot of noise, right? I saw this thing on line one time. It was a funny meme, and it said, I'm, I'm starting to believe that the, dema- that the supply of opinions is outgrowing the demand. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's true. And so we need to sit with Jesus and hear his voice, not just all the noise and opinions and convictions of the world and all those things that get thrown at us, right? How many times do we open up our phone and, and we, we read something, a message, a post, a, an article, a newsflash, or whatever, and these things aren't neutral. Like, they're not just like, we don't just leave unaffected by it. It kind of is pushing us a certain direction to think a certain way or value a certain thing. And so we're constantly, if we're on our phones at all or walking around the world, we're constantly bombarded with all these messages about how to think and live and what to believe and value and love and what the good life looks like and all of it. And so we need a space where we say, oh, man, I am just like so bombarded with all these messages. I need a, a place where I can just sit and, and filter those and, and discern not just uh, whatever the world is telling me to do, but Lord Jesus, what do you have for me? What do you say is true. I want to live life your way. And so, Lord, will you help me hear your voice? But sometimes things are so noisy that we can't hear his voice. And so for me, one of the, one of the biggest changes in my life for the past um, six months or so, maybe five months, um, has been trying to wake up every day at 6 a.m. Not every day. Trying. Most days of the week, waking up at 6 a.m., uh, to be with Jesus. And, and I wake up before the kids and Amber are up, and I go out to the kitchen, and I <clears throat> make my coffee, and I listen to my Bible reading plan that I'm working through, and I sit in our comfy red chair, and I pray, or I don't say a lot, I just sit and listen and spend time with Jesus. Now, this hasn't always been my routine. Uh, for years, even as a pastor, for years, I would, be, I would often like wake up and just like rush out the door and try and get to work or get to the office. There was, there was just so much to do that it was hard to carve out time to pray. You ever been there? Yeah, even as a pastor. So I'd like get in my office and start to pray or try and have this like really nice quiet time and then there would just be this, this flood of like, oh, there's all these things I have to do and it was really hard. Whereas, so I was like, the only way to do this is I got to get up before the noise, before the hustle and bustle of the day, and sit with Jesus. Definitely before the kids get up, because <laughs> once they're up, it's like, you know. So, um, and it's been a game changer. It's, it's truly changed. It's, it's uh, probably the thing I look forward to the most in my day, is just that time sitting with Jesus. And so I don't know what that looks like for you, where you can carve out that time, uh, but again, our calendar shows us where our priorities are. And so we've got to figure out, where am I creating space just to be with Jesus? Maybe you're a night person. Maybe you have free windows that are, you're more energized in the afternoon. I don't know. For me, again, it's, it's the morning. But I read, read this book by A.W. Tozer that really around the same time this was forming, that the book was titled, God Tells the Man Who Cares. God Tells the Man Who Cares. 
Meaning if we care enough, the man or woman, ladies, God tells the man or woman who cares. The idea is that if we care enough, if we want to hear the voice of God, he'll tell us. He speaks. He's not silent. Um, The question is, do we care enough to slow down and quiet down enough to listen? And so if we seek him, we'll find him. Amen? So the takeaway, hey, again, not go pick a fight, but just evaluate your discipleship to Jesus and sit with him enough to know, where do my convictions and lifestyle align or not align with the kingdom of God? Is there anything here out of step? Is there anything in my heart right now that that isn't in step with who Jesus is? Would you maybe just take the simple step of reading through the Gospels? Pick a Gospel, read through it a chapter a day. See Jesus, hear the voice of Jesus, and say, Lord, what in here do I need to, to respond to and change about how I'm living? And I would encourage you, as you read through the Gospels, or as you hear a sermon, or, or as you, again, sit under uh, reading Scripture, ask the question and, and notice where your emotions are stirred up. Pay, pay attention if something is stirred up in you, if you're, if you're angered by something, or there's a particular verse or passage you don't like, or that makes you uncomfortable. Chances are that God's doing something there, that that's a clue to maybe that's, that's something, a topic or a teaching that you need to pay attention to. Right, read through, and what are the passages that are hard for you, whether it's about you know, sexuality and gender, or about money, or about forgiveness, or about love, or sacrifice, or suffering? What are those things you read through and you're like, ah, I don't know if I like this at first? That might be a clue that God wants you to lean in and, and listen. So, followers of Jesus will be confusing to the world. Let's just embrace it. Embrace the awkward. In youth ministry, that's one of our mottos right now. Embrace the awkward. It's always awkward. Just lean into it. Here we go. Um, but the council then ultimately finds their verdict. Verse 18. They, they called them in after deliberating. What do we do with these guys? I don't know. And they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So there's their answer. Hey, guys, shut it down. We've heard enough of the Jesus stuff. Don't do it. Again, there, I imagine, would be some some threats with this, uh, some warnings about consequences, social consequences, more jail time. Who knows? Uh, They say don't do it. And again, Peter now has an opportunity. Peter and John, how will they respond? They hear the command. Peter and John replied. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So they don't back down. And they don't give in when they're threatened. Notice again, the, the council's still confused, right? They couldn't decide exactly to figure out how to punish them. What do we do with these guys? Even verse 21, they couldn't decide. All the people were praising God for what happened, but we've got to put a stop to this. And so they come out with this verdict. Don't talk anymore about Jesus. And I love verse uh, 22. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Like, what a geezer. He was over 40 years old. Man. Um, I know. Sorry. 
It's not, hey, it's the Bible. I didn't, it wasn't. Um, the man was over 40 years old. No, it's, it's a joke. I, I don't think that's saying because, like, in your 40s, you're, like, ancient. And how could God do anything there? But I think the idea was, again, from birth, he, he'd, have, he'd have decades of this condition, being lame, and he was healed. And so the focus isn't so much at, look at how old he is, but look at how long he's had this condition. I love you, over 40-year-olds in here. I love you. <laughs> Notice their response. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. So followers of Jesus will be confusing to the world, but we must be committed to the Lord. Followers of Jesus will be confusing to the world, but we must be committed to the Lord. Right? So clear in their response. They know where their allegiance is ultimately placed. They're committed to the Lord. Say, you guys can, you know, do whatever you need to do. But here's how we have to live and respond. Right? You guys can judge whether we should listen to God or man. And it's ironic because the council, the, the, the high court of Jerusalem, of course, in theory, it would have to say, well, yes, if, if God's authority is ever challenged by man's authority, you listen to God, of course. And so they're putting it back on them. They say, council, you guys got to think about this. You have to honor God's authority over human authority. And so I want you to see the freedom that comes from this. When you're committed to the Lord and bow to him and and him alone, do you see the freedom? They say, again, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. You guys can figure that out. You can sleep over that. We're not really that concerned. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Right? Spend your mental energy trying to deliberate what to make of us. <clears throat> Judge for yourselves how you're going to rule on this matter. You figure out who you think we should listen to. For us, it's a no-brainer. Right? For us, the choice is clear. We're going to keep sharing about Jesus. We're compelled to. We have to. We have no other way forward. So do you see the freedom and the simplicity in following Jesus? Right? We have one Lord, one master, one king, and so we're going to do what he says. And y'all can decide whether you like that or not, or if there's consequences for that or not. Uh, we're not going to lose sleep on it. We're just going to follow Jesus and share the gospel and do what God's called us to do. Simple, right? There's a great quote that says, either you can fear man and live as a slave to everyone's opinions, or you can fear God and live in freedom. You can fear man and live as a slave to everyone's opinions, or fear God and live in freedom. Now, this text has been shown to be this this classical biblical paradigm for civil disobedience. Craig Blomberg, scholar, says, wherever human laws contradict God's laws, people must be prepared to break the laws of the land. Again, wherever human laws contradict God's laws, people must be prepared to break the laws of the land. Right? We recognize that there is a higher authority than our local government or national government or global entities or whatever. Uh, The highest authority is God himself. We submit and we bow the knee to King Jesus. He's the one who gives us our marching orders. Now, we need to be careful and thoughtful how we apply this. 
This doesn't mean that we don't follow any of the laws of the land. <laughs> There's a higher authority, so I'm not going to pay my taxes. No, like, be a good citizen, pay your taxes, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but if there's a place where God's law is contradicted by human law, like here, say, hey, don't speak about Jesus. Say, well, actually, God tells me I have to be his witness throughout all the earth, and so, no, I'm going to keep talking about Jesus. You see our brothers and sisters throughout the world in, in places where Christianity and preaching the gospel is illegal. There are a lot of places in the world where that's the case. And so our brothers and sisters there uh, don't stop. They don't stop preaching the gospel. They don't stop gathering as the church, even though it's forbidden. No, they continue to, because they say, we are uh, to submit to one Lord, one master. His name is Jesus. And so we're going to do what he tells us to do, even if our government tells us not to. We have to continue speaking, they say. Verse 20, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And so you see in this that, that for them, there's this, they're compelled, right? They're so captivated by the person of Jesus and the transformation that God has done in their hearts and in their lives. They're saying, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Right? There's this, this joy, this, this love, this abundance that's bubbling up out of their hearts, overflowing. We, we can't help speaking about it. We have to do it. They're saying there's no one like this Jesus. He's, he's the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. Think about what they've seen and heard. The, the death of Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world, the, the resurrection of Jesus. He's alive. He sent his spirit now to make us alive in him. Saying there's no one like him. And so it's not as much that they're, they're compelled or motivated out of fear, like if we don't talk, God's going to be mad at us and smack us around. And so we cannot, there's this, this inner compulsion. They're compelled, so captivated by who Jesus is. So we have to share. And so the response for us is, uh, again, I, I don't know if the response is necessarily to leave here and just feel this, this pressure um, to go and, and talk about Jesus against your will and, and go and you, you better do this or the, you know, the pastor in the church is going to be, be mad at you. No, the, the response is, is not just like grit your teeth and just do it. Um, the response is, would you, would you look to Jesus? And if your heart is not so captivated by his beauty and his glory and his goodness and his love, the invitation would be then, would you sit with Jesus long enough? Would you sit with Jesus and invite him into your life? And would you allow him to come and speak? And would you quiet down and hear his voice? Would you make it a habit of regularly looking to him? When we behold his glory, when we look at who he is, that's when our hearts begin to change and soften and be shaped. And so it's not to say, go out there and get to work and you better talk about Jesus. It's, would you, have you sat with Jesus long enough to see who he truly is? And then allow him to lead you by his spirit to whatever influence you might have out in the world. Now, one of the ways that we, we do this, one of the ways we look to Jesus, one of the ways we sit at his feet and hear his voice is we, we take communion together as a church family. 
It's one of the ways we remember who he is. We're a forgetful people, right? And so we need these constant reminders of who God is and what he's done. And so we take these simple elements, the bread and the cup, that remind us of the gospel. And so hopefully you got these little uh, packets when you came in. If you have one of some of them are really hard to open, so you just start now. Just start trying to open now. If you have one that looks like this, it's probably a little easier. But communion is the step that, that Christians take regularly as we gather to celebrate the gospel, to remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for us. And so I'm going to pray for us in just a moment and give us just a little space to sit with the Lord for a second. Um, and then we'll take the elements together. This is, um, uh, we practice an open table here at FBC, which means, hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you're from out of town or visiting or it's not your home church, um, we invite you to participate with us. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, uh, you're not a Christian, you can simply leave the elements on the chair and just, just reflect on the things we've talked about this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, we look to you now and just remember that there's, there's no one like you. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you came from heaven to earth. You died on a cross for our sins. You rose again on the third day. And now you, you offer us this, this new life by your spirit. You change our hearts. You make us alive when we were dead. Though we were guilty, you forgive us. Though we were orphans, you adopted us into your family. And Father, you call us your children. We're saved not by works, so that no one can boast. We're saved by grace. And so we take these elements, representing your broken body, your shed blood, remembering the gospel. Thank you for what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Amen. I had a pastor.